Welcome to Purpose Inc., the podcast where we discuss corporate purpose and stakeholder capitalism. I'm your host, Michael Young. Well, I am thrilled and honored to have Alice Korngold back on the podcast. Alice is a consultant, advisor, trainer, educator, author. She's a noted global expert on the issues of sustainability, diversity, inclusion, board governance, and ESG. We are here to talk about Alice's new book, A Better World, Inc., Corporate Governance for Inclusive, Sustainable, and Prosperous, for, for a inclusive, sustainable, and prosperous future. Get it together, Michael, which is out now. And Alice is a, a good friend and a returning guest to the Purposing Podcast. Alice, thank you so much for coming on today. Michael, thank you for having me back. You're my one of my favorite interviewer. You actually read the book, not just the book flap, um, <laughs> and have wonderful insights and questions. So thrilled to be here today. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah. as you said, we're here today to talk about, um, it's actually a new edition yes. of A Better World, Inc., but with a new subtitle, which, yes. as you said, is Corporate Governance for an Inclusive, Sustainable, and Prosperous Future, with the concept that prosperity is dependent on inclusion and sustainability, which we'll yes. talk about. Good. And all of this in the hands of corporate governance, which is where the power lies. Yes. So um, in the first edition, um, it was a Better World, Inc., how companies profit by solving global problems where governments cannot. We established through evidence and case studies that companies have the power to find innovative solutions to our biggest social, economic, and environmental challenges. The new book reinforces that in that companies have the um, global footprint, the vast resources, and market incentives to address our biggest problems. They're most effective when they do so in collaboration with nonprofits. Uh, they're effective at stakeholder engagement and they have an effective board of directors. So we're building on that. And in this book, the three major themes are inclusion, sustainability, and board governance. And I'm gonna take each of those one at a time, um, but starting with inclusion. So the concept is that our, that businesses, our economy, society, in our world focuses on a small group of people. And around the outside are people of color, women, LGBTQ+, people with disabilities, refugees, asylum seekers, migrants. And we let one or two in sometimes, but they are not really fully involved through our doing in the global marketplace, in society, uh, and to their detriment. But my case is that to the detriment of our economies and our society. Uh, so, and to give some evidence, and there's, as you've said to me before, a lot of evidence in the book that, um, that we know from the World Bank and other valid resources, that we are squandering hundreds of trillions of dollars by leaving people out of our economies. Women alone, with um, equal access for women, that alone would add $160 trillion. 
uh, to the global economy. Um, we also know in the U.S. we have a shift in demographics. And by 2045, white people will be in the minority. So by leaving out people out here, we are really limiting. First of all, there's a moral impression imperative to be inclusive. But beyond that, we're limiting ourselves economically. Our businesses are really limiting themselves. Um, in Africa, for example, where there's a lot of evidence and case studies, for, uh, according to the Council on World Affairs, 420 million of the 428 million of prime people of prime working age entering the workforce globally through 24 will be people in Africa. So we're leaving them out of the equation if we don't think more inclusively. Uh, so what I focus on the book are the tremendous opportunities for companies, and some are already leading the way, in finding innovative ways to be more inclusive. And this is often, I think always, in partnership with NGOs. An example would be Tent Partnerships, uh, which was founded by uh, Hamdu Hamdi Yulukaya, who's the founder and CEO of Chobani, a multi-million dollar global company. And what 10 Partnerships does is they provide the research, advocacy, guidance, resources for multinational companies worldwide to include people, uh, migrants, refugees, uh, immigrants in, in their workforces. And their studies show that this is a positive branding experience in terms of consumer relations, access to tremendous talent, and also improves employee retention. So there are many case studies in the book of companies. They have 300 member companies that they are working with. And when companies become part of them, they actually... Uh, link them to local nonprofits in communities where the companies have a presence. So those local resources, those local nonprofits, actually uh, provide the training and job placement. And in fact, Airbnb helps find housing. Um, in the book is a case study of Sodexo, which is a uh, uh, based in France, a French food services and facilities management company, over 400,000 employees, 55 countries, 100 million, 100 million customers daily. And they say that by employing migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and working in partnership with tent and local organizations, this is good for their brand. Their, their customers love it. And they see it as a skills play. Mm. Um, another example is Microsoft, which is developing technologies, mm. uh, innovative technologies to promote accessibility for people with dis various disabilities, including um, hearing loss, vision loss, which with mm. an aging population will continue to escalate. Yeah. And they employ people with disabilities, including people on the autism spectrum, some of yeah. whom have extraordinary skills in technology innovation. They call it a skills play. Yeah. And uh, HP has an ambitious initiative to accelerate digital equity throughout the world. And for 150 million people by 2030 with a big focus on Africa. And yeah. we know many other nonprofits, Girls Who Code, Perscolis, 
who um, advance girls, people of color, people from marginalized communities in uh, tech jobs and the tech workforce. I'll yeah. stop before I move on to sustainability because it yeah. looks like you have a comment or a question. Well, yeah, and I just really wanted to underscore um, the point that you make um, in this section of the book that 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 in that really it's a waste of human capital, and that inclusion, you know, if we just take a business case, right? Moral case is clear. If we take a business case, this is a waste of human capital, and and it's also a, a you know it, it's it's an opportunity to diversify. In, you know the, the workforce, but also the customer base, and exactly. the inclusion, the inclusion of of everyone into a brand's experiences is is hugely important. And I think you know the and and that's truly one of the things I really liked about the book is that there's a real connection and correlation between all of these topics, um, inclusion, sustainability. Um, with a, a strong business case, and so it's, uh, and you know, unfortunately, the the business case of the status quo is really what everybody keeps coming back to. And I think time has come, right, that that we start to look for that new uh, business case. And I do think it's it's happening, right? It it is happening, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and I think uh, large companies in particular are really on the front foot. Uh, in terms of that. So anyway, uh, please continue on. Are we, gonna, are we going to dip Thank into you. sustainability? We will indeed. Point? But as All you right. say, it's a matter of access to human talent and vast markets. And our traditional uh, concept of society, this limited view, is really strangling opportunities economically for business and certainly for society, as well as perhaps most importantly, the moral imperative. Mm. Although that might be harder to sell, the business case is an important part of that. Sustainability in the original edition of the book, which came out 10 years ago, each book has a chapter on education, healthcare, human rights, economic development, and climate and environment. And in the book that came out 10 years ago, um, providing evidence of the threats of climate change was new for people. And as we know, a lot of people didn't take that very seriously. Now it's very clear to all of us that climate change is an existential threat. And there are companies that understand in their case studies in the book um, that this is an opportunity. So one of my favorites is train technologies because it's just crystal clear. They're decarbonizing buildings worldwide and this is a profit move. This is revenue generating and What's good, especially good about the case study is that the opportunity is recognized from the top down and the bottom up through and through, including with the board of directors that is diverse in terms of experience, expertise, networks, relationships, having experience and expertise in terms of our global social and economic challenges, including climate change. So this is the case for um, effective boards. And before I continue on to the topic of boards, I'll stop for a minute again. Well, and thank you. And and I think the, you know, the the climate and environment section in particular, I think, is one that 
um, you know, really truly speaks to why why corporations are going to have and are going to have uh, and will play an outsized role in this particular area because there is there is a, a, a clear economic case for for uh, decarbonization and especially those companies that are on the forefront of those technologies and so they can just literally slipstream in behind uh, what is what must become a uh, systemic and societal change and build new businesses and I think that's what the the train case study in particular yep. highlights right is is that is that need you know and and maybe just uh you, you talked a lot about in the book uh, or you mentioned the CDP the carbon disclosure project extensively and I just wanted your thoughts on on you know, Globally, there is not a uh, price for carbon that everyone has really agreed to. But I think what one of the things that we are seeing are, is private capital in the investor class and capital allocation starting to punish companies that are not significantly oriented toward a low carbon future. So what are your what are your observations and thoughts in, in, in that dynamic between capital and, and management uh, around decarbonization? The companies and investors I spoke to um, like the idea of a price. Um, they say it's much easier than to calculate the threats, the value, um, and very measurable. Um, and you know, we talked, you and I talked about the opportunities, also renewable energy. I mean, um, decarbonization is, of buildings is just one aspect. But on the reverse side, the threat side, insurance companies are racking up $50 billion of losses mm -hmm. from natural catastrophes in this year alone. And it's estimated that will grow to $100 billion a year quite soon, um, that that will be, that will be a regular a regular matter. It's interesting to me that 10 years ago, this wasn't on their radar, um, but now no one can ignore this. So again, threats and opportunities and opportunities for businesses that find remedies. Yeah, absolutely. All right. On to board governance, which is, I think, again, in your, in, in, in the book is, is clearly where uh, the the pivot point is around reaching reaching this more prosperous future. Um, my favorite part, and that is corporate governance, and it's been apparent for quite a long time. Boards have the power um, in terms of the companies that they govern, but global economies are affected. Um, it's the impact on pension funds, employment. Um, just uh, supply chains. I mean, every aspect of business and therefore society is really driven by decisions the companies make, which is in the hands of boards of directors. And the best news is that boards are changing. Um, I think with the um, various issues, climate change, healthcare, education, economic poverty, 
we unfortunately are moving backwards um, because of uh, COVID and also the impact of climate change. And the really positive news is the boards are changing. And we see this in board composition. First of all, they're becoming more transparent um, and much more purposeful in thinking, who do we need on this board that will help us maximize our opportunities in the global marketplace while mitigating risks, um, reducing costs, um, and then adding value. So what we're seeing um, in the book, as you, as you know, I compare um, board composition in 2014, around the time when the book last book came out, to 2022. And I just looked at some 2023 data from Spencer Stewart, Spencer Stewart um, board and indexes. And what we see is more women. In fact, the S&P now companies, S&P 500, 98% have two or more women. Um, more diverse racial and ethnic board composition. Uh, it's now 22% overall, but 46% of new board members are from mm. diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, I, I think kind of disappointing is the board members of non-U.S. origin are only 15% among the S&P 500, but it is an improvement over uh, since 2014 when it was only 8%, and that was only among the S&P 200. So if you're looking into moving into new markets, especially in low middle income countries, you need people with that lived experience on your board and who bring extraordinary qualifications and boards who do so, I think, are seeing the benefit. Um, in terms of board members 50 years and younger, uh, there's only 6% six, six overall, but 18% of new board members. And that is, I think, because of the emphasis on technology innovation and threats like cybersecurity. Uh, so that is um, a positive change. And the average age of new board members is 58, where the average age of boards has been steady for many years at the age of, well, 63.1 years. So we're seeing diversity of age as well as gender, racial, ethnic background, et cetera. So boards are, are focusing on compositions that will help them be qualified to address the greatest threats and opportunities from cybersecurity, climate change, human rights, opportunities in emerging markets. Um, and then the bottom line is that Boards have the authority, responsibility, and, account and accountability to grow the value of the companies they serve. But this affects, uh, this affects worldwide economics and society. So uh, it's extraordinarily important. And building boards with the most relevant experience and qualifications is the most promising news of the day. Hmm. Yeah, and I think those those demographic, um, um, you know, um, composition things also really, and you mentioned this in terms of lived experience, but they point to a different, you know, a diverse point of view of, you know, people think differently. And that's probably what really underlying it needs to change. And I think there, 
plenty of examples where, you know, if the board composition is all white men, you may come to the same conclusions repeatedly about topics um, like you've mentioned. Um, and, and some just don't have lived experience, especially those in their, in their 70s and beyond are just not going to be as tuned into it. So it's, it's not just about checking a box and saying, okay, we've got this many women and this many people of color and this many non-US born. It's really about, do we have the kind of thinking on the board that will protect us from future threats, whether those are climate or um, economic or cyber, whatever they are, uh, environmental. It's really about new thinking and new new ideas and new attitudes and new points of view that are are that come with board diversification in particular. Board members who are in their seventies, eighties, who have been CEOs of companies, they were not dealing with these issues of cybersecurity and climate change. In fact, the internet was commercialized. If you think the average age is 63 on boards, the internet was commercialized when they were in their 40s. So this is not something that they've grown up with. We all know that our children and grandchildren are doing better than we are. And um, it is the younger board members. um, And that's why I think the under 50 is an important number Mm -hmm. that um, our most adept, most expert can be most innovative and those perspectives, questions, voices on the board mm. in imagining a company's um, opportunities in the global marketplace bring great, great value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And can we spend a few minutes talking about the, the corporate NGO nonprofit connection, symmetry, opportunity? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I've been doing this work for 30 years, Um, you know, including sustainability, ESG, and DEI before we had those terms. And over that time, and others who've been working in that time frame will probably recognize this, um, companies and nonprofits were in two different worlds, you know, never the twain shall me. And companies were about profit, nonprofits about mission. And as we've seen over the past 30 years, coming closer and closer together with companies beginning to understand the value of mission and purpose for employees, for productivity, for retention, and nonprofits recognizing the importance of having a highly effective revenue model and certain business practices while not by any means, sacrificing mission. And um, that pattern uh, is also apparent in terms of working together. So uh, as you know, one of the things that um, I and my team have been doing first as a nonprofit that I built and ran and now as my own firm is training and matching business executives to nonprofit boards globally, nationally, regionally. Again, for 30 years, There was a foundation person who said to me 25 years ago, um, an esteemed person who's still a big person in the philanthropy world, he said, but they're Republicans. You're putting Republicans on nonprofit boards? And I was pretty speechless 
because I, that wasn't the point. The point is that there are people who care about missions and bring value and resources and useful perspectives to the table. And we see that. And fortunately, board matching is becoming much more, um, uh, many more sources of those services, which is a great thing. Um, again, though, I'm actually working with a board that is all corporate executives and having mm. a mix of people and perspectives, of course, is really important um, to, to add in there. But we're seeing nonprofits and companies beginning to understand each other and to be able to work more collaboratively. Um, in the first edition, I wrote a case study of Dow and the Nature Conservancy and the engineers working together. And oof, you know, um, I spoke to all the sources involved and they said it was really tough going at first. The engineers at Nature Conservancy didn't trust the corporate people, the corporate people didn't trust the nature. Um, but over time, they found common ground mm. and accomplished what they set out to do, which was to value nature so that it becomes part of business decision making. Mm. Um, that that really happened um, 15 to 20 years ago. And I think we're seeing um, both nonprofits and businesses um, much more adept at working together to achieve common purposes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, the book is A Better World, Inc., Corporate Governance for an Inclusive, Sustainable, and Prosperous Future. I will link a link uh, available at fine bookstores, and I will put a link uh, to the Amazon uh, page for this in the show notes. And then just lastly, Alice, I was, um, well, two things. Um, I was looking at our um our first episode, which was in April 2020, if you can believe that. We, we actually taped it in February 2020. That's right. Which is important because I talked a lot about social justice and equity. That's right. Uh, and the rest of the world started talking about those issues in May. Little, little did we know. Yes. And I really was thinking that same thing about, wow, that conversation was so far ahead of its time. Uh, probably long overdue, Correct. but at least, um, you know, I, that's right. We did record it and you're absolutely right. We published it in April. Um, and yeah, and, and, and I think here again, we'll look back on yes. this book and this topic and this discussion. And, and I know I'll, I'll remember how prescient you were uh, here today and, and you've always been in, in your, um, in your thinking. So thank, thank you. you. It's just by talking to the right people and learning from the right people. Uh, That's it. You know, along those lines, when I researched the book 10 years ago, the issues of education, economic development, healthcare, um, they were familiar to me through my work. Mm. But the chapter on climate was tricky for me. I was not familiar. And I talked to, you know, brilliant sources and people like Eric Rostin at, at Bloomberg and all kinds of experts. And I saved that chapter for last because it was less familiar. And as I went through my notes and started to write it, I thought, no, I am not understanding this right because it's just not possible that this disaster is right in front of us. And I don't see it in the media. I don't see businesses. I don't see insurance companies talking about it. And um, I called my sources back and I said, so this is what I think I heard, but I know I, I'm not getting it right. And they said, oh, 
you're getting it completely right. And now, of course, we all know. We all know, unfortunately. Yeah. Good luck getting fire insurance in California, flood insurance in in Florida, like the the chickens have come home to roost yeah. in that regard. Yeah, and it was all predictable if you talk to the right people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Alice, we're going to have to leave it here. Thank you again. It's such a delight and a pleasure to have you on and to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to talk with you on the interviews or over lunch. Absolutely. Let's do that soon, too. Great. All right, Thank Alice. you. Thank you. The Purposing Podcast is a production of Actual Agency, helping innovators communicate in a changing world. More at www.actual.agency.